millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh, I want to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But I don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it there. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I went down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you surely man. There are no easy games in the Premier League, so the saying goes, except for say all the ones that Manchester City are playing in at the moment. 23 goals have been scored in the six matches they've been involved in. 21 of those 23 have been scored by City. So it is entertainment of a certain type. Highly skilled, clinical, almost cold. But if you like your thrills to be served up a little warmer, a little more helter-skelter, I politely point you in the direction of Liverpool Football Club, whose six games have also produced 21 goals. In their case, they've generously given up almost half of them to their opposition thereby turning potentially dull games into ridiculously exciting ones, such as the 3-2 win at Leicester this weekend. Hello and welcome to Monday's Second Captain's Football Podcast. Owen, Ken, Murphy here. Hello, How there, you know? If we take this as a microcosm of Liverpool's season, Ken, do you applaud the gung-ho attitude or solemnly warn against the dangers of being so loosey-goosey at the back? Um, do I... Do you, think it's, do you think it's a way forward for Liverpool to keep, keep at it as they're doing at the I moment? I say full speed ahead. Full speed ahead. Yeah. That's what it's all about. What about all the potentially title-losing goals that they'll give up over the course of the season? They probably will. Think of all the hearts. Uh, think of all the hearts and minds they'll win. Well, on. actually, I'm kind of I'm on board with that. <laughs> Only one team's going to win the league. Why not be the team that wins everyone's <laughs> hearts and minds? Yeah, that's that's what Johan Cruyff said about the '74 World Cup. I mean, he was justifying losing the World Cup. But he said we actually won that World Cup because we're the ones everyone remembers. Mm-hmm. Well, you're talking shite there, Johan. But uh, you know, <laughs> cool. Thanks um, for contributing. Yeah, I, I do. What I find interesting about it is the is the very um, uh, I, obviously I was away last week. Yeah, when welcome when, back. Thanks, Owen. Uh, and this was when Liverpool were extending their un, their winless run to four matches and lost at Leicester um, in the Carabao Cup. Uh, and this and and they'd had a few disappointing results. Sevilla, Burnley, obviously got completely destroyed by Manchester City. Um, so you had some, you had a lot of commentary. Uh, I noticed uh, there was one by Alan Shearer. Uh, and you were on holiday in the UK, right? I was in the UK. So you very much had your finger on the pulse then, Ken. 
Off the no, not there. at all. No, uh, <laughs> no, not at all. I, I, did, I actually didn't even know the game was on. All right, okay. <laughs> until the following that's day. That's good to hear. But I was in the land that phone signal forgot. Aaron. Okay. Um, but I, I did, I, I obviously like to catch up on my, my reading. So I saw that, that uh, Alan Shearer and John Giles had both written columns, different columns. They're, they're different football men. Uh, but they had both made the point that, that they haven't really seen progress since Brendan Rodgers was there. I think Giles went so far as to say they're worse off now than when Brendan Rodgers was the manager. Uh, and Shearer said, Liverpool are no different under Boss Klopp than they were under Brendan Rodgers. So I thought, really? Is that, is that true? Because in my, in, in my opinion, they're radically different. I would say, I mean, there there are some similarities. Rogers, for at least one season, had a very high scoring team that let in tons of letting in tons of goals was the features always between forty and fifty, or maybe fifty two, a lot, a lot of goals. Um, but the other thing, the, one one thing which I think is important, and you have to pay attention to these these differences because they're not little differences, is that when Rogers was the manager, Liverpool couldn't win a big game. He played 25 games against um, Manchester United, Manchester City, Chelsea and Arsenal. He won five of those. The only games he won against Manchester United were the David Moyes Manchester United. Uh, he lost all the others. Uh, he, he, could, he never could beat Chelsea, which obviously was the, was the fatal one in the end. Uh, there was just poor... Whenever the team was good that they were playing against, it was poor. Now, since Klopp has been the manager, they've had a, a tremendous success, and they've been most successful <laughs> in those games. You know, I think last season it was uh, 10 games against the other teams in the top six, and they lost none of those games. You know, they had the best record of the, of the top teams against other top teams. The problem was they couldn't beat the poor teams, but if you look at Rodgers' record, they would wipe those teams. You know, it was... Um, uh, Against Burnley, Fulham, Wigan, Norwich, QPR, Cardiff, Bournemouth. You know, not the not the big dogs necessarily of the Premier League. 19 wins out of uh, 20 and one draw. Good record. Mm. They're the games that Klopp can't win. You know, he, he's hopeless, or the, the team has been hopeless. So It's precisely the opposite. It's exactly then. the opposite right. is what I'm saying. You know, when you say the, the team is the same, they haven't changed, they've completely changed. <laughs> They've, they've totally changed. Maybe the results, the uh, the net results doesn't change all that much. They're still not a team that's going to win the league, I guess is the point. Well, well this is the other thing, is that is that uh, the season they came, they scored, they conceded the 50 goals was also the season they came closest to winning the league in all the seasons they've had in the Premier League. You know, there were seasons when they conceded 20 goals, 25 goals, and, and didn't come anywhere close. Uh, and that's because they scored 101 goals that year. So scoring goals is good. You want that? That's that's what you should actually be aiming to do. You need to try to score as many while well, not. Get, you know, this is a simple, simple enough principle. I mean, what they've done so far has been incredible. Uh, they've let in three goals from corners already. Um, they've only had 21 corners against them. They let in three goals, so it's one in seven corners is a goal. And usually, I, can, I mean, seven corners would not be that unusual a number to concede in one game. So this is bad. This is really, this is, this is bad. I mean, a corner is a goal every 50 corners on average. I was thinking if you're training, if you're practicing corners in a training session during the week, hmm. defensively, if you're the manager, you're thinking if you were to practice seven, you would want to be keeping all seven out. Hmm. You'd be disappointed to let in one out of seven, I would have thought. Well, you'd be disappointed to let in two out of 50, Owen. Is is actually statistically what you would be disappointed with if you're if you were looking at corners because that's about what a corner is worth a goal every fifty corners. Most teams will score a corner every ten games. Like 
maybe four in a season. Liverpool have already let in three, you know, and in six matches. So that's a bit of it. That's obviously not good. But, you know, when you see Shearer made the point, and this, this I think, I was writing about this today, and this is the point that kind of annoys me the most. Because, uh, so Shearer says, and this is a couple of days, this is after they, they lost to Leicester. He wasn't writing it after they beat Leicester, but, you know, he, he made the point already. I assume he still thinks it. it's not as though one result would completely change everything, especially when they also conceded bad goals. Um, <clears throat> but he said, uh, he says, Liverpool's possession and attempts on goal make for impressive stats. The one that matters, the scoreline, uh, didn't. He's actually, sorry, made for impressive stats. He's talking about the uh, the loss to Leicester in the Carabao Cup. Uh, or Burnley, rather. Burnley's defending, by contrast, showed a team who know what they are doing and are willing to do it. It shows they work on it in training and they look like they enjoy defending. Well, it's a good thing they do enjoy defending because Burnley... Which which team do you think it is, Owen? And this is quite an easy one, actually. Which team <laughs> in the Premier League do you think allows more shots on their goal than any other team? Oh, that's a softball to start off with. Uh, Burnley? It's Burnley. Thanks yeah. again. Okay. Burnley are, are conceding a, a solid 20 shots per game on their goal. So it's a good thing that they enjoy defending because they have a lot of it to do. That's what I mean. You know, they have a lot of... The goalkeeper has to make a lot of saves. The defenders have to make a lot of blocks. There's a lot of defending to be done. Uh, and Burnley, you know, do let in a goal from time to time uh, and haven't uh, won too many matches. So how valuable is this as like a, as an example of what you should be trying to do is what I'm saying. You know, if you look at the if you look at Liverpool for the same statistic, they're uh, the only team that allows fewer shots on goal than them is Manchester City, who are kind of a similar team in some ways. They're both trying to play in the other team's half and the, the, the way that they defend is by not letting the other team have the ball, have many attacks. And of course, when they do attack, the attack tends to be almost, you know, it, it's from an unmissable position. This is the problem that they've been having. But which is the better way of defending? The one where you're desperately, you know, always trying to stop them kicking the ball into your net from somewhere inside the box, which is where they spend most of the game, or the one where you're trying to control the game and trying to keep the ball away from them. They're going to have one or two chances, but that's why you need to score your own chances. Right, non-members. The second Captain's World Service was a beautiful, beautiful place last week. Here's some of what you missed, including my new favourite guest, Murad Mohammed. Uh, Owen, I like you and I like your style. Well, not just because of that little pick-me-up, Murph, but it, it well, helped. mostly. But... Yeah, it, it helped. He is, or was indeed, Muhammad Ali's former security man, and Murad could tell quite a story. So when I went in there, I saw this kid... And... He had raggedy shoes on, raggedy shirt, but he was built like Hercules. And I said, son, can you fight? He said, yes, I can fight. Can you promote? I said, well, I can promote if you can fight. Murad Mohammed, it's been amazing spending some time with you oh, today. Man. You mean it's over? We are all about to witness an event that's never happened before in television sports. A top boxing contender coming inside the walls of a prison to fight an inmate. What kind of time did you do for what? Small things, burglary, uh, harassment. I beat up four cops. Beat up a few cops. Uh, small harassment. stuff like that. I mean, you know, it's a bit of an umbrella term, really. Who knows? <laughs> harassment. harassment is. So you're not in favour of splitting Dublin into three teams, <laughs> four teams, five teams, then Kevin? No, um, no not when I'm playing anyway. <laughs> Sounds good. They don't want to do it because they don't believe this would be a good thing to do. I think they've believed for too long that the market is going to solve this problem. But I, I think mean, who seriously believes I that know. anymore? I know. That's the, that's the craziest thing it would be I possible know. to believe. 25% of kids aged 8 and over can name four gambling companies or more. That's extraordinary. I thought he'd live forever, you know, with his boyish attitude towards life and the, the smile that he had and everything else. I, 
guess I thought he'd live forever, and maybe Jimmy did too, you know, because he, he, all his life as a sports broadcaster, as a person involved in sport, he lived his dream. Kevin McManaman, the latest Kennedy political podcast. Response, Sorry, there were two separate interviews. We didn't talk to Kevin McManaman about political issues. Of he the might day. have been in the headspace to do that sort of interview, Kevin, it's on the day. Maybe this week, to be honest. He's yeah. a pretty smart dude. It sounded so. like a quite a good week, actually. Yeah, Samantha Thomas, Gambling Culture, Uncle Jim and Jimmy McGee. Loads more besides. It was a, it was a, we managed without you again. Just managed. Mm. Just stayed afloat for a week. Mm. But now you're back in US America. Like Wiley Coyote for the first three or four steps after he steps over the precipice, Ken. We managed to keep <laughs> keep forward momentum going. To support independent journalism and join us today for five euro a month plus fat. You'll get daily shows, a members induction pack, and no more annoying ads like this one in your Monday podcast feed. Monday shows are also released to our members' feeds first. And members also get first shout on tickets to live shows, including to our end-of-year shows in the Liberty Hall Theatre, which we will be releasing in the next week. Go to secondcaptains.com, join today, and I will like you, and I will like your style. Uh, Owen, I like you, and I like your style. Got an email in here from World Service member, uh, World Service member signing themselves as Aero, like the chocolate bar. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, uh, hi, lads. After hearing Ken explain how Murph tripped and disfigured him for life with a turkey neck, I was wondering, is this the reason for the ever more frequent Murph bashing? that Ken has become prone to do. <laughs> One example is Ken's drown in the cream egg comment. There are many of these types of put-downs that Murph never defends himself from. What's the beef with Murph? I'd like to hear Murph defend himself and start taking some shots of his own, perhaps. No, well, I'd you, never Aero. do that. I mean, I, listen, I've disfigured a man for life. I mean, I think he deserves... Yeah, you've got to stop paying your dues on that one at some point, though. You've, uh, I've apologised. You've apologised on air, late. off air. Yeah. Hmm? Stop or start paying his dues. Stop or start paying the dues. No, I've, I've apologised... Uh, I think the ledger isn't quite balanced yet. <laughs> another, That's all I'm saying. Another six, seven also, years. I fear drawing more wrath upon myself. Yeah, that is true. Ken is an extremely sharp-witted individual. What, uh, it, what gains... Uh, I'm sorry about the cream egg thing. That was, that was, what was the cream egg comment? It just came to my head, the image of him drowning in cream egg yeah. contents. <laughs> you know, but, it's not a very uh, nice image, Ken. No. It's not a great no. Way, I imagine that it would kind of get softer as it warms up, so the more you struggled, the more you'd, the quicker you'd sink. <laughs> anyway. Report on sport, please, Ken. So we will talk a bit more about, um, you know, uh, what, to, what to do, whatever to do with Jurgen Klopp, uh, with Jacob Steinberg and Jonathan Liu, who were both at the King Power Stadium on Saturday and got to chat to the big man. In fact, I hear the big bear might have even got his paws on one. <laughs> but you'll have to... <laughs> Wait and see uh, what happened there. Um, but I got physical with one of our contributors. Well, that's Interesting. Yeah. In hold, the me- hold your horses, there. In the meantime, um, yes, uh, Romelu Lukaku scores again. Mm-hmm. Fans chant again. Sing the song again. Um, this this is the Manchester United's uh, song about Romelu uh, Lukaku celebrating the size of his penis, which has been. Uh, well condemned as as racist by most of the not all commentators, uh, Brendan O'Neill, uh, who is a noted provocateur, writing in Spiked magazine, says that it it simply reflects the uh, the sort of prissy concerns of the you know the, uh, how does he describe them the middle class new football cucumber sandwich bringing tourists to the terraces. I mean, as he knows, as he should know, uh, nobody uh, belonging to the class that he's describing there would bring sandwiches to a game even if they were a cucumber cucumber sandwiches are they particularly known you're not talking quite prawn sandwich there 
No. A cucumber sandwich? Uh, I suppose cucumber sandwiches. Is, what, what sport do you think of? Cucumber sandwiches. Which sport? Cricket. Cricket. Right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, football? No, not so much. What, football, food. What kind of food? Quick, quick. Pasty. Pasty, yes. Pie. Bovril. All of those. All of those things are acceptable answers. Cucumber sandwich? No. Um, but, I mean, if you've been to a Premier League game at some point in the last uh, 15 years, you would know that uh, people don't bring their own food. Certainly not the... Uh, middle class and new football. That's the point of the massive hospitality section, uh, serving all the really nice food at the game. Like, remember the Liverpool fan from last year complaining about the, the atmosphere in Anfield and saying, I see pe- people with pizza boxes in the main stand. That's the point. You can you, you buy, you know, buy a pizza, buy whatever. You don't bring cucumber sandwiches. So I don't know how many games Brendan O'Neill actually gets. I think he may have been seizing upon this just to try to ruffle a few feathers because that's what he does. Um, but you know, we're back to the, the question of whether this this uh, song is is racist or not. I mean, the Manchester United fans who are singing it clearly think it's not, uh, and generally they 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 say, well, what you know, what's the problem? It's you know, he we're singing about Lukaku. We love the guy. He's great. And so what if he's got a big penis? Isn't that good? So we're back to the kind of Conor McGregor. McGregor was what I thought of when this story first surfaced. McGregor, yeah, explaining that. He's not racist, uh, had not made racist comments about Floyd Mayweather. And in fact, that McGregor himself is black from the belly button down. Exactly. Uh, and which he, d- I, I, I believe he didn't understand why to employ the racial stereotype in this sense was, was bad. Because isn't it a good thing to have a big penis? I mean, doesn't, aren't we all agreed on that? Is it, does everyone, doesn't everyone agree? Isn't that another cultural convention? <laughs> you know uh, so yeah I mean it, it, I find this quite interesting because it's not it's not the first um, sort of uh, kind of racial issue that's come up around Lukaku since he joined Manchester United for instance <clears throat> there's also been over the last while a few uh, writers pointing out Daniel Harris I can think of uh, being one a few other writers have been pointing out the, that the way in which, even the way in which people speak about Lukaku or Paul Pogba, um, uh, often is often they couch descriptions of the players or they talk about the players in terms which obviously draw attention to their physicality. You know, oh Lukaku, look at this guy, look at the power, the pace. You know, I, I've done, I do this myself because he, I mean, he is like well, the, yeah, he's the, he's the most powerful forward in the league. It doesn't it doesn't seem to me to be problematic actually to to speak about an obviously you know preternaturally athletically gifted player. In you terms were saying of before he's the only outfield player who weighs over a hundred kilograms. Yeah, he, he slimmed down a bit, but he was yeah he was he was like bigger than Richard Dunn. Like it was Dunn and Lukaku were top of the scales or whatever mm. they were. You know, so he's you know he's he's a unit. Um, but the point that, that, for instance, Daniel Harris and others would make is, why is it always this? Why is it? Always, why are we always talking about their physical characteristics, the physical characteristics of these black players? It's always the athleticism. Same thing with Pogba. Why not the awareness? Why not the creativity? Why, you know, why not the the aspects of skill and imagination? Mm, well, nobody talked. I don't know. You're no. When Alan Shearer was in his pomp, people spoke about him the same way. Nobody's talking about Alan Shearer's incredible skill. Mm. They talked about Alan Shearer's incredible power and his athleticism, his ability to score goals through those those strengths. I would have I would have thought. Mm, mm. And and you know Gareth Bale, 
uh, Stephen Gerrard mm. to an extent. You know, I would say I would say uh, I certainly have spoken about these players in the same way. So, but what I, the reason I bring this up is I do think it's it's interesting when you see. I mean, for me, that's that's ambiguous. I can kind of see the point that's being made, um, but I also feel that it's it it would be wrong to, almost to speak about say a player like Pogba. Um, to, to sort of downplay his athleticism for mm. fear of seeing, because for me the athleticism that he has is 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 totally inextricable from the way that he plays the game. You know he is a phenomenal athlete, and this is what gives it. You know he's got that big stride, the way that he moves across the ground. Um, that you know he can he, he can go from one half to the other so quickly. He plays these fifty yards outside of the foot passes with no backlift. Do you know how much power you need to do that? When was the last time you saw Juan Mata try this? He doesn't play that way. You know what I mean? Juan Mata does different things. He, he is not going to try to flick a 50-yard outside of the foot no backlift pass. But Pogba can do that because of the sort of athlete he is. So I think it's all part of the same package. I do appreciate the point that, that Daniel is making. Um, this, however, is, is not as ambiguous a situation. This is just stupid. And I'm afraid that Manchester United fans need to stop doing this and it's clear because they sang this they sang the song and then they sang we're man united we'll sing what we want that was the only chant that i could actually make out clearly on the television coverage on saturday the second one saying that they'll sing what they want yeah yeah well well look you know i mean they were singing that rather more defiantly than they were singing the other one perhaps uh they they were and 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 it is obviously defiance it's like oh no you know we're not going to do what you tell us you know, sort of like uh, as Brendan O'Neill refers to Marina Hyde and, and disparaging the cause of the Edith Sitwell, the football commentary. You know, we're not going to be told what to do by Marina Hyde. Um, but they were also asked not to do it by Romelu Lukaku. Yeah. This is the point. Like, like O'Neill's article went up obviously before this, uh, or maybe he hadn't seen it. I'm not sure if he's following the media that closely uh, around football. But, the, you know, during last week, it had been put out by Manchester United. Lukaku said, great backing since I joined MUFC. Fans have meant well with their songs, but let's move on together. <laughs> so he's, he's saying, don't, don't do it. I mean... In, um, a, in as polite a way as he yeah. can possibly muster. Yeah. O'Neill, O'Neill had... had, had no, no, his, no, no, Romelu. It's bigger than you now. And uh, your offence to this uh, 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 song no longer matters in the broader culture war in which I'm now taking part in. Yeah, I mean, he, he went on, he, he basically said, his, his, his article concluded on the point of, you know, the, the, the whole point of the article was this middle-class commentary just trying to sanitise the game by, you know, pointing the finger everywhere and seeing racism everywhere. And there is no racism. Racism is gone. 30, 30% of the players in the league are black. How could there be racism? <laughs> I mean, how, many, how many players in the NFL are black? We see what's happening there at the moment. You know, I mean, it, <laughs> like, it's, 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 a, it's a very poor argument. He finishes by saying, um, you know, Lukaku says we should move on together. That is, he hasn't condemned fans as venomous, knuckle-dragging racists, but he does want them to stop using that particular chant. Fans always promise they would stop chanting it if he asked them to. So that's it, settled. Literally later that day. Not settled. They're still singing it. Because it seems as though the, the, the need to be defiant and to show, oh, we're not going to be told what to do by Marina High is, is, is stronger than the, oh, God, so just, just, you've embarrassed yourself with this song. You should really stop. And, you know, uh, I, I see there's a quote today from Mina Raiola, who is obviously Lukaku's agent. He would like the song to stop. They're talking more about the song than about the football. That's his and my quote. Um, and the other thing to notice is that Chelsea also had a similar situation with Murata 
Right, when well, Chelsea, when Murata arrived, the Chelsea fans started singing a song, uh, uh, Alvaro, well, I can only assume, uh, Alvaro, whoa, Alvaro, whoa. He comes from Real Madrid. He hates the fucking yids. That was the Chelsea song. So Murata and Chelsea both said, hey, guys, can we please, Murata's tweet was something like, can we please respect everybody with our songs? And the Chelsea fans come back the other day. Murata's scoring a hat-trick. He's having an absolute baby-faced dream. You know, <laughs> Murata's just like the absolute like uh, new star coming into the Premier League. Uh, scores a hat-trick, a uh, couple of brilliant goals. One, one particular where he ghosts by a defender. Just a oh. lovely, exactly, the, just a beautiful goal for any striker to score. And he's greeted, what, the, the same cheers? No. Uh, same he chance? Co- he, he comes from sunny Spain. He's better than Harry Kane. Sing the Chelsea fans. Yeah, okay. And so Murata then tweets afterwards, hey, thanks everyone, so delighted with your new song. That's great. You know? <laughs> so, so when you're being out-diplomacied by Chelsea supporters, <laughs> you know, the, the United fans have just got to change the, just change the words. It's actually, it actually works well as a song. Uh, you know, it's a good, it's, it's a good, it's a good chant. You know, it sounds good, but uh, it's just be, be creative. Put something else in there. This just has the potential to get embarrassing. I mean, why is it? Why is it problematic? Because a racial stereotype is is racist by definition. That's mm. what that's what it is. So it is racist. And he's asked you to stop. So we're, we're, come on, he like, has asked you, know, you to just, stop. Yeah. You're not. You know, I'm not calling all the Manchester United fans who sing it. Racists, but I am saying they are singing a racist song. So unless they, you know, if, if they've got a problem with that, then don't sing it anymore. What's been going on at Manchester City? I just, just want to mention that Mourinho seemed to maybe been jealous of all the attention Lukaku was getting because uh, he was sent off for encroaching on the pitch. His own comment on the song was, "I don't understand what the fans sing. The only music I understand clearly is one from my opponents when they tell Mourinho to go to a place. <laughs> That's the only one I understand. Go to a place." I think he means fuck off, Owen. Oh. <laughs> I think that's I think that's what they're telling him. Uh, they sing that one to La Donna e Mobile. Yeah, I know the one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone knows. Everyone knows that one. That's the only one Mourinho says he understands. He also said that the weather was very poor. We haven't talked about the football. We were talking about the uh, the weather was rather was bad because it was so good. Uh, the game itself was Lukaku scored. Um, then Manchester United, it was a pretty, it was a gritty. Alan Shearer definitely would have been impressed, let's say. Uh, it was a Burnley-style performance uh, which in which they repelled a lot of attacks. In the searing heat of the south coast of England. The searing heat. I had to look it up. It was 18 degrees. It was 18 degrees. Ah, but it's a lot warmer when it's in September and you're not really expecting it. I, I think. Come it on, is. Ken. You're, you've got you've girded your loins in July. But well, in he, September it could catch you cold. He said, "Look, we don't get this weather in Manchester. It doesn't yeah. matter what time we train. We train at midday. It doesn't matter. You know, the last time we had this heat was in LA and in Macedonia. Remember, they played Real Madrid in, in the Super Cup in, in Skopje, mm. and it was very hot. That's the last time we had this heat or anything like it. <laughs> so he's joined the club of foreign managers in the northwest of England who complain about the weather. But Jurgen Klopp and Guardiola were complaining about the wind, making it difficult to train and play football, whereas Mourinho was complaining about the intense heat, which has made it impossible for his team to play their football. Only mad dogs and Englishmen <laughs> go out in Southampton at the, in the 3pm zone. Uh, so that's that. Um, I, I, I just want to say, actually... Um, there, there was another thing that happened well as well. It was a great story by Roy Smith in the New York Times of Ilkay Gundogan. I don't know if you 
saw this one. No, I haven't seen this one. It was very good. It was a long. It was a long piece, which was also a long-term project because he he, he essentially he evidently had contacted Gundian around the time that he was injured, which was last year, uh, and was then sort of following his rehabilitation for several months. So he kind of caught up with him a few times over this period. And it's kind of about the loneliness and insecurity of a player who's trying to recover from uh, an injury uh, and his feeling of, oh, everyone's forgotten about me and I'm never going to be the same and all of these things that go through their heads. Um, so it's pretty good. Uh, but I just mentioned it because he mentions uh, that one of his physios had uh, persuaded uh, uh, Gundogan to climb Scarfell Pike, the highest peak in England. And I mentioned this, Owen, because wow. I climbed that same mountain on Friday. What? Just gone? But you're right, I did, Owen. Uh, Just the highest peak in England. What, what oh, sort man, of... No big deal. What are we talking about? What's the... What height? Uh, 970 metres or 980 metres, something oh, like that. Oh, right. Less than 1,000 metres. Okay, that's good. So you went for a walk, is what you're saying. Up a hill. Sorry, I, I told it was in four figures. It's just well, it is in feet. If you want to look at it in feet, it's over three thousand meters. So. Man. Welcome to the twenty first century. And a well done. You got up and down. Uh, what like in half an hour? Well, I did. I, <laughs> no, no, no. It was it was it was it was, it was tough. It was testing. I did uh, I did a lot of the climb uh, in a hypoglycemic state, which didn't help. Okay, now that is uh, that. I do have a lot of respect. I for got that. to the I, I I summited, and eight seconds later, uh, I fell over horribly on my uh, having twisted my ankle collapsed oh, the, the ankle on oh no collapsed to the rocks and lay there moaning softly oh no and then uh, listeners said uh, Ken's ankles are he's had, weak, he's had ankle trouble very for a long time. and this was in this was in horrendous conditions zone horrendous 19 uh, degrees Celsius <laughs> no uh, 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 driving uh, horizontal rain and uh, gale force winds uh, no view, obviously. In fact, it was we were trying to grope our way back down <laughs> off the mountain yeah. on this. But then on, I saw not only had Ilkay Gunningham been up there, but also um, that they had a bit of a problem on Saturday up there <laughs> when four men had to be rescued uh, after becoming, becoming incapable of walking due to cannabis use. The <laughs> 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 uh, oh, no. spokesperson for Mountain Rescue... Uh, wrote on the Facebook in Cumbria, uh, Cumbria Mountain Rescue. Persons phoning Cumbria Police because they are stuck in a mountain after taking cannabis, now having to deploy Mountain Rescue air support and ambulance to rescue them. Words fail. <laughs> uh, Words are probably failing those lads as well. Yeah. On top of their legs failing them. Yeah, you'd, you'd, they were in a great state. You'd want to claim to have been struck over or whatever when by the time the <laughs> Mountain Rescue actually came up and were just looking at you, you're like... <laughs> but uh, look, it's, it's, it's dangerous, and it's not for everybody. No, but for the likes of Ilke, go again, and, and yourself, yours truly, mm. uh, recommended. Has the ankle now? Is it recovered? No, it's 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 really wrecked. Actually, I have to admit that I I uh, also engaged in some I, I can consume controlled substances in the form of alcohol All right, on uh, the mountain. I drank a mini wine. <laughs> on the way down, I'd originally meant to have this mini wine with yeah. you know some food on the top of the mountain, but the conditions were so harsh and inhospitable that. But and then my ankle was really hurting. But I found, having drank the mini wine pretty fast, because I, I sort of didn't want anyone else to see me doing it, because they're all mountain hiking outdoor people, and I just feel I didn't want them to judge me. So I kind of glugged it, mm. and then I was. Did like, you have a glass, or was no? I guzzled it. I guzzled it from the bottle. It was you know a mini a mini Horrible, wine like 187 milliliters or whatever. Glass and a half, yeah. And it's I, more than a glass. Can't it's you? a large glass. Yeah, and I uh, 
And not only did the pain in my ankle subside considerably, but I actually became much more confident <laughs> as I picked my way down the slippery stones. Yeah. You so, should have had one on the way up as well. So, and one at the summit. So it depends. It all depends which controlled substance you want to indulge in. Um, Manchester City were uh, obviously very impressive, Owen, as you alluded to already. Um, the the Guardiola ball boy thing. Did you see that? I only saw highlights of it and I, I did not know what was going on. He seemed to be giving a ball boy some sort of tactical team talk. He was he was ticking off the ball boy. Is that what it was? He was saying, move your ass, ball boy. We need to get some balls back in play quickly. And you are dawdling a little. Mm. So if you wouldn't mind, pick up the tempo. Uh, but other than that, you're doing a great job. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was an interesting instance of, of micromanagement. I did wonder why he couldn't say it to the ball boys beforehand. Hey, ball boys. Or, you know, say it to them during the week. Listen, we want to be really quick. He actually he did explain it afterwards. I mean, he said... Um, well, maybe he did, and that particular ball boy just failed to meet a standard. Maybe. It's interesting. I've, I've just never... I mean, I know managers do try to control the ball boys or, or do imp- implement a, an integrated ball boy strategy... It has been done. Uh, usually it's don't give them the ball back. Give us the ball back. Don't give them the ball back. Yeah, there have been altercations between managers and the rival ball boy in the past. Yeah, Eden Hazard, of course, booted that ball boy. Not mm-hmm. very hard, but, you know, a little bit. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's the, put the ball up your shirt or whatever and say to him, what ball? <laughs> you know, th- this kind of tactic is usually what. But in Pep's case, it was, no, no, we need intensity. We need control. Um, he said... Uh, the ball boys, were, uh, they were, if there was a foul, no one went to get the ball and start play. There was five, ten seconds before someone goes to get the ball and start play. When this happens, everything is slow. The ball boys were slow. Everybody was slow. And we have to create the game to provoke the game. And we didn't. So that was what, uh, that was what he was doing. Um, which just goes to show he leaves no stone unturned. Uh, <laughs> I mean, a lot of managers might have, might have felt that going to sort of give a ball boy a little lecture during the game might might look a bit over-controlling, but that's not the kind of thing that Guardiola worries about. So there's one, there's one other thing I want to talk about here, on, which is a couple of a couple of big stories from the continent of Europe. Uh, from different countries, Owen. Germany, from Spain. Uh, Germany in the Der Spiegel last week published this, uh, that, you, you know, football leaks. Football leaks, the sort of uh, football hacking service, which... Uh, which occasionally reveals documents pertaining to football transfers and other business affairs, uh, which you imagine the people involved aren't always delighted about. Um, but they sent some stuff to Spiegel about uh, the, the Barcelona uh, moves for Coutinho and uh, Usman Dembele, uh, and which included some leaked emails between uh, Michael Edwards, Liverpool's... Um, director of football, I'm not sure exactly what his title is, but he's the guy in charge of Liverpool's transfers. <clears throat> and, and Barcelona is saying, please, you know, I respectfully ask you to stop publicly and privately harassing Felipe. But would you see the details of what they were harassing with? They were harassing him on with a guaranteed offer of 115 <laughs> million euros over five years. Like, a, that's guaranteed. A guaranteed minimum of 115 million euros over five years. I saw Steven Gerrard on TV the other day. Uh, was it after the Liverpool game saying, Oh, you know, he's South American. They all dream of going to Barcelona. I was like, 115 million euros. You know, this is a lot of money. He He's coming in as the third highest earner at the club after Messi and Suarez. And that's only the bottom amount of money he can make. I can understand his passion for this offer. 
you know, it wouldn't matter if he'd literally never heard of this. Hell, some dude. people from an Anglo-Saxon background might be interested in going to Barcelona <laughs> for that kind of cash. I, 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 I honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. The Dembele offer was not much. Well, it was a good bit less, but it was still huge. I mean, to a guy who's who's like had two years as a as a professional, uh, twelve million twelve million a year basic, but like loads of bonuses. Um, such that if he didn't make 48 million euros over the first three years, they would make up the difference. Like that was so 48 million over three years was the absolute minimum that he was uh, that he was signing on for. But he could make more depending on how successful he was and the team was. So this is the kind of money. Uh, it also this article also had some information about uh, emails in UEFA where you you got UEFA officials talking about with this transfer market we're a bit worried about it it's a bit unstable it's kind of beginning to look a bit like american robber banded capitalism from the 19th century hmm. and and whenever anyone brings up that comparison it's never meant to be isn't that great? You know, the 19th century, the Gilded Age. No, people aren't usually speaking about it in that way. It's usually, oh, this is bad. Yeah, some people have got way too much money and it's kind of distorting everything. Um, so uh, that, I suppose, fed into why UEFA have been threatening Paris Saint-Germain with some harsher sanctions than they thought they would usually be uh, kind of in line for for breaking financial fair play. Remember, Paris Saint Germain had done this before. Had they 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 coloured outside the lines a little bit on financial fair play, and you wait for like, oh, that's very bad. You uh, you know, we're going to fine you, which obviously will make a huge difference, and we're going to cut your Champions League squad a little bit. You can't pick a few players. There's a few players. It's smaller than other squads. I think it was 21 players instead of 25. And PSG like, oh, I guess we're just going to have to deal with that, but. According to an amazing story by Diego Torres in El País, mm -hmm. and I love Diego Torres's writing about football because everything just sounds way more interesting than than it probably is in real life. He just has a gift for it's the key to great sports writing, isn't it? He just has a or gift writing. for it's, it. Is, absolutely, he has a gift for capture, capturing this sort of interplay of all these gigantic sort of fevered egos, uh, and the Neymar Paris Saint Germain situation is just such a such an amazing story for a writer with these talents. Uh, and he's done a great piece. Paris Saint-Germain have denied it. They've denied the central contention. And essentially he says, uh, Cavani was offered a million euros by uh, the chairman of Paris Saint-Germain to agree to let Neymar take the penalties. Now, you might have seen, uh, they've recently been squabbling over who gets to take the penalties. Uh, Neymar wants it, Cavani wants it, Cavani took it, missed it. <laughs> Uh, but they were arguing over who, who gets to kick, uh, take free kicks and all this kind of stuff. And, and you know, you got players squabbling on the field. It's, it's not a good look. You know what I mean? Um, so apparently the, the Paris Saint-Germain uh, chairman tried to... Uh, I'm talking here about al Khalifi, uh, al the, the, the guy who's running Paris Saint-Germain on behalf of uh, Qatar Sports Investments. Uh, he, according to Diego Torres, says, Hey, Edson, you know, listen, can we maybe... Say I give every million euros, will you give him the bellies? Cavani's like, you, you, you disgust me. I'm not interested in money, said Paris Saint-Germain striker Edson Cavani. Money doesn't interest me. I uh, believe that I'm the number nine. I'm the penalty taker. I'm the third captain of the, of the club. I believe that I have earned the right to take these penalties, and I will continue to take the penalties. And frankly, no, I will not take your money. But meantime, uh, Al-Khalifi also, according to Diego Torres, sent emissaries to test Neymar. Um, they said, "They said, hey, Neymar, why don't you forget the penalties? You know, you're a total player. 
you are the king of the team. Perhaps, in this case, it behooves the king to act with magnanimity. The number nine. He lives for the bucks. He lives for goals. Why not let the number nine take the penalties? You know, everybody everybody knows that you're the top man. Uh, Neymar, says Jager Torres, did not understand this logic. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so it goes on, but, but what... I, a massive spanner in the works was thrown into Paris Saint-Germain by UEFA, according to Diego Torres, basically because UEFA said, look, this is what you're doing to financial fair play is just making us look really stupid. What if we kick you out of the Champions League? What if we ban you from participating in the Champions League? And suddenly the whole thing is, oh, that's, but no, the whole point is to be in the Champions League. So it would kind of, it would ruin the whole plan. Uh, and this is and this is what UEFA is saying. Look, I mean, we, you've, you've broken the rules so flagrantly. We can't put up with this. So what are you going to do about it? You, you know, the rules say that you've got to kind of show like what no more than a thirty million euro loss or something next year. Uh, yeah, what are you going to do? So Paris Saint Germain's um, reaction to this was to say, "Oh dear, oh dear, um, oh dear." Uh, okay, well, if we're gonna if we're gonna lower our losses to that degree, we're gonna need to sell a lot of players. So, uh, according to uh, Digitoris, in the course of forty eight hours, uh, the leaders called the players' agents representing half the players to open the exit door. <clears throat> the list included Di Maria, Pastore, Matuidi, Lucas Moura, uh, Julian Draxler, Hadamin Arfa, Serge Aurier, Thiago Silva. All of them called up and said, uh, "Listen." We want to sell you, so thanks for all your service. But uh, if you can't find a club, please, you know, don't on our account refuse any moves. And obviously, um, Matuidi has left and Aurea has left from that list, but they didn't succeed in offloading a lot of these guys. But what they did succeed in doing was annoying all of them. All of them are like, oh, right, so that's how it is. So you're telling us that we, that you have to sell us just to pay for this guy who's already come in and annoying all of us, because there's lots more detail in the story about how, you know, a month after landing in Paris, Neymar only seems happy when he distances himself with his friends, the Tuch. And this is like his crew, you know, the same kind of crew who were hanging out with him in Barcelona. You know, like he, according to Torres, he's got no friends in the team. He's got, because he's acting as though he's already the, the, the top man. Like he's come into a dressing room with, with guys like, you know, Mata and Silva, who... Okay, maybe are, are no one's idea of like top three in the world players, but they have been at Paris Saint Germain many years. You know, they are the the kind of leaders of the team. Big characters, Ken. It's crazy what I'm looking for. They're they're big characters, um, but you know, uh, when Neymar uh, Neymar surprised his colleagues with his disproportionate attitude, um, they saw him behave with the presumption of a golden ball, as though he'd already won it. And according to Torres, only Dani Alves. Uh, is he is essentially the only player at Paris Saint-Germain who remains on friendly terms with Neymar after this extremely turbulent time. Uh, he organized, it's claimed, a dinner for them to all get together and settle their differences last week, which had the atmosphere of a funeral. Oh, so this, this is great. What a story. It, it is. It's an amazing story. It's yeah. an absolutely amazing story. I don't even care how much of it is true or false. I just am glad to have spent 10 minutes in the company of this story uh, and the pen of Diego Torres. And may Neymar and PSG give us many, many more of these stories. Let's wrap today's report on sport.
he agrees with plenty. Just it's always who's saying it. It's never what's actually said. Ninety percent of anything is who's saying this, and ten percent is what are they actually saying. So the ninety percent in Giles' case is oh, it's that twat. John is the best football brain in the world. He just thinks I'm an annoying twat. I'd never let you do. I'd never let you down. But if you're talking about the, the, the press, which you're talking about, have this uh, opinion of Guardiola, it doesn't necessarily mean that football people have. Yeah, I, I think I do like Ken Early's work. He writes fluently and thinks uh, cogently, but uh, I think he's wrong. The press come and go, as we know. You mentioned Ken Early. Well, yeah. you know, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with anything Ken Early says about football. He just thinks I'm an annoying twat. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> You know, what can you, what can you do? Can you please everyone? Jacob Seinberg and Jonathan Liu were both at the King Power Stadium to see Liverpool beat Leicester 3-2 in a thriller. But, Jonathan, was it the type of loose performance do you think that raises more questions than answers? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly questions over, over the way they, they kind of let it slip. I mean, they were 2-0 up just before half-time and, and it all looked fairly easy. And then they just kind of they, they let Leicester in. They scored um, a goal just before half time. Then they went three one up, and then they conceded another one. And um, and, and yeah, then then they missed a penalty, which, which could have made it a draw. And that that considering Liverpool's dominance of, of the game in, in an attacking sense, that would have been a really quite quite a disaster for for Klopp and Liverpool. Simon Minnie made the point that you can be an attacking team and also defend well. That they're not mutually exclusive so why is it that Liverpool can put in a performance like this when, when it, they, ha, they seem to have this embarrassment of riches up front these days and yet still can't keep it tight as, at the back to use the old phrase yeah I mean the, the interesting thing is it's 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 tempting to to see Liverpool as a kind of a sort of a, a Kevin Keegan light sort of team where they have so many great attacking players that however many they concede um, you know they'll, they'll score more um, I think part of the issue is that uh, when they when they do get caught out, um, they're getting caught out in really really bad positions. I mean, if you, if you think about the the goal that Burnley scored, for example, at, at least three of the of the Manchester City goals, they they just they just look really bad because when their defence is getting caught, they're getting caught in in bad positions, and there's not the cover behind them because they're essentially pressing so high up the pitch because that's that's what Klopp wants from them. That uh, when when the ball comes over, when when they do get through, there, there's no cover, and they're really kind of they're left in one on ones quite often. And and Vardy showed that on Saturday. Jago, I guess the question, the kind of uh, real question here is what? Why is this defence so so unconvincing? I mean, everyone watching it can can see. Cop Cop might say that was an entertaining game, but it was also it was an incredibly stressful game. You know, if, if you were a Liverpool supporter to watch. Um, and the question is, why does the defence just look as though it's about to concede at any time? Is it a, is it a case that individual players are not good enough, or is there a problem with the with the system? Is is there is this Klopp's fault? Has he failed to? Does he not know how to organise a defence? Um, well, I'm not sure if, if Klopp doesn't necessarily not know how to organise a defence. He actually said on on Saturday evening that he's usually a, a really good defensive coach, and probably if you go back to his. Borussia Dortmund team. I doubt that they would have won two successive Bundesliga titles and reached the Champions League final, beating Real Madrid along the way, a host of other top teams, without um, having a good defence. But on, on the point of whether or not these individuals aren't good enough, uh, I think that 
they're probably Matip and Lovren aren't as good as Hummels and, and Subotic, who he had at um, at Dortmund back in back in 2013-2012. At the same time, I, I think back to when Pochettino took over at um, at Southampton in in 2013, midway through the season, and under Nigel Adkins, they conceded all sorts of goals and uh, they, they got beaten quite heavily in quite a few games. And it was very quick that Pochettino managed to organise this defence quite quickly and. And, and turn players like Font and Ployveld into much better defenders. And I think that there is that. I think there are, there are things that a manager, an, an effect that a manager can have on defenders who maybe don't look up to scratch under under one guy, and then another one comes in, and and it starts to all come together at, at the back. Um, I, I guess that with Liverpool, it, it sometimes it just looks so fragile. And just before the corner went in for the first. Leicester goal, which, by the way, should have been disallowed for a foul on, on Mignolet. I think you have to make that slight defence of um, a fairly unconvincing goalkeeper. I turned, I turned to Paul Doyle, who was also there for the Guardian, and said, I still think Leicester could to, could win this game <laughs> because Liverpool just don't they, they don't fill you with a lot of faith that, they, that something crazy isn't going to happen. And, you know, 10 seconds later, the ball's in the net. It was, they went 3-1 up, and it was a minute later that Leicester were scoring five minutes later they were winning a penalty and I think until um, those kind of things stop happening it's going to be really difficult for them to just get the consistent run of, of results and, and to, to win the league or to win a major trophy because they, they, I think they're just undermining themselves at the moment with those errors that, that happen and the inability to kill teams off. You both mentioned what Jurgen Klopp was saying after the game. I mean, he, he said some stuff, um, uh, some kind of technical stuff uh, to an extent, he said the main th- main thing for defending is tactical discipline. I don't know everything about football, but I could write a book in the next two hours about which space we have to defend, why, when, and where you have to be. When you have to step up, I can't take a car and drive them out of the box. That's how it is. Um, there's a couple of things about that. I mean, first of all, uh, Jonathan, when you hear him, when, when you hear Klopp speak like this, I mean, he often speaks in such a sort of disjointed way. Is he? Does he? Is he seeming to make sense? I mean, are you getting what he's saying, or is he just spewing words? The first time he says something, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense. And, and I think that's partly language and idiom. And, and that's partly the fact that I think his, his mind works in, in a way that I, th- I think his, his, his mind runs quicker than his mouth sometimes. And But this, when, when he explains concepts uh, two or three times, as, as I, I guess he must on the training ground, that's when, it's, that's when it starts to cut through. And, and it's interesting what he was saying about, uh, I think it was Joe Gomez he was talking about, uh, although it could equally have applied to Moreno for, for Leicester's second goal, you, you can't physically take a car and drive them out of the out of the penalty area. I mean, I think there's there's two things he's saying there. First of all, it's a it's a it's a slight dig at the personnel that he feels that he, he's been given. I mean, there's it's no secret he wanted Virgil Van Dijk in the summer. And I think he would have been kind of a game changing defender for them. But the the other thing is that Klopp is. Klopp is a smart man and he's a charismatic man, but he kind of knows both of those things. And every so often, he likes to to use his his pulpit, as it were. And and people people love to sort of to you know to to, to sit at his elbow and, and and get told things. He likes to remind people how smart he is, and he, he likes to say things like, "Well, I'm a pretty good defensive coach," uh, which I suppose could smack of arrogance. It could, but it, but it certainly speaks of a, a really really strong self confidence. And and that's that's kind of the essence of how of how Klopp tries, 
played his team. He, he tries to um, he tries to fill them with positivity, and and any kind of negativity that that comes in from the media, it, it's it's almost like a virus that he needs to extinguish as soon as possible. And I think that it's more of a feeling that he tries to that he tries to infuse to, with, with his team. That um, that I, that I think kind of reinforces the tactical message. Yeah. I, I think um, on what when we were talking to him, the first few questions were a little bit negative, centered around their inability to kill off games and then Jonathan actually cut in and said I got a, I got a hug you got a hug because he asked him the start of a positive question he was so happy to hear a positive question that he actually hugged the journalist when when this happened well, what was the question yeah. yeah you can you know why why does your success have the momentum of a runaway freight train what, what was the question <laughs> well, the, the, I started the question by saying not many teams come to Leicester and score three goals and and the next thing I know the, the, the huge clop arm is clasped around my neck like a <laughs> In a, in a slightly, you know, weirdly aggressive way, uh, but but you know, very affectionate as well. And but the second half of the question is, are you, are you are you are you confident that you can? You've always got enough goals in the team, even when you concede a couple. Uh, at which point, you know, his, his mood changes slightly. <laughs> <laughs> you wonder though whether this can sometimes weigh down on attackers if they you, you do feel like Liverpool can score every time that they go forward, and they've got so many. Amazing attacking players, and now the Manning's back for the game tomorrow night. He's back from his suspension. You sort of wonder how they're going to how they're going to fit them in. That's going to be fascinating. But as well, if they're struggling to keep clean sheets, and if every advantage they they eke out is suddenly cancelled out or halved, you wonder if, if that will have a um, if that will just weigh down on, on on the attackers who are having to do so much to to win games as well. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. You know what what you've been saying there. Uh, about that sort of positivity. I mean, there's what he said there has a couple of things which I imagine are going to be absolute red meat for certain uh, critics of Jurgen Klopp. Who we have over here, John Giles, for instance, speaks about him. Uh, Dietmar Hamann has been unimpressed for a long time with what he sees. And there's two things there I can imagine they would pick up on. One of them is this: uh, this uh, when you have to step up, uh, I can't. It, it, it's actually all. When you have to step up, I can't take a car and drive them out of the box. There's two things there. Number one, stepping up seems to be his answer to every defensive issue. It's like the only defensive move he knows is to step up. And there's there's all kinds of other defending, you know, getting behind the ball, getting in the way, you know, all, all, all of the usual things that we would think of as defending. Uh, there's also the I can't take a car and drive them out of the box. Is he pointing the finger at his players a bit. I mean, this is something that, that Giles, I think, has certainly accused him of, saying, look, he, you know, he's not taking responsibility. He's saying it's the players' fault. You know, I'm, I'm great. I'm a great defensive coach. It's just these guys don't know what they're doing. So, so I wonder if you, if you see any merit in either of those arguments that maybe he, he actually doesn't understand defending as well as he thinks he does. And maybe he is, uh, maybe he's passing the book to his players a bit. I, I think there's a, there's a, it's, it's quite easy to... To take a pot shot at you know quote English football and all the people in it and, and the pundits and, and, and writers and whatever, I think there is a, there is this curious uh, tendency within English football to to kind of divide the team into its constituent parts as if they're as if they're easily divisible. You're the defenders, you do that. You're the attackers, you do that. And and this, by the way, is, is why English football produces very few interesting midfielders. Um, the way that Klopp sets up his team, and and I'm I'm kind of I mean I I've, I read your piece this morning, you know I kind of touched on similar themes in my in my piece that Klopp understands defending only in in the sense that he understands how the whole how the whole team works together, how the, how the whole game works, and and this idea that defenders if defenders are having to do their job, it means somebody further up the pitch hasn't done their job, and and it's interesting that when he talked about 
where the game went wrong for them at 2-0 up. And he's, he says, we didn't step up, we didn't push up, uh, we, we opened the game up, we didn't play quickly enough. And, and I think that kind of speaks to what, what he sees uh, as as the, the essence of, of, of playing the game in, in an aggressive way. And, and if aggression isn't 100%, if you, your aggression's only 99%, then it's nothing. And I think that that that's in many ways the kind of gamble he's taken that, that keeping up this relentless aggression, which not not only requires incredible levels of physical skill but concentration and the right players, that if he if he does finally manage to nail this this side as he did at Dortmund, that that is playing one hundred percent aggressively, one hundred percent forward thinking, that it, it will all come together. What do you think, Jacob? Uh, and specifically, it would help if his players all. Feel they do seem to enjoy playing for him. I think that that seems to be the case, all right. But if their feeling does start seeping in that he's blaming us for this, he's saying he can't, you know, he can't drive us out of the box and all that kind of thing. He didn't name names or anything like that. But is he in danger of crossing that little line that that maybe should or shouldn't exist, whereby a manager is never supposed to criticize his players? Uh, yeah, quite possibly. I think for the time being, he's got enough authority and and charisma to. For, certainly for Liverpool fans to regard him as the, the guy who's right and these players who aren't doing their jobs as, as the ones who are, who are at fault. But I think probably if it continues happening and he can't on the training ground um, get get better results from these defenders, then he's going to be, I think eventually, that serious questions will have to be asked. I, I think on, on what Jonathan is saying there about um, about the, the high press and everything and the, the, the aggression, the I think we we struggle sometimes to trust these kind of managers because I think it's all it's all very very fragile the way that it's the way that it's built up it, the logical extension of pressing so high and demanding the ball and using the attackers as your as your means of defence is that the other team can't get it and the more that you keep them away from your goal the less likely they are to score the problem that Liverpool have is that they make so many elementary errors you know on 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 Saturday it was just. Uh, one one of the things that's probably got a little bit forgotten it was Mignolet taking a heavy touch on a back pass and almost letting um, Okazaki score at one nil and th- those those kind of things you just don't see that happen from someone like De Gea from from Lloris um, go to Barcelona Ter Stegen doesn't do that kind of thing uh, he's he's going to have to sort something like that out but we I think we we struggle sometimes with these. Uh, Managers who who introduce a bit of risk to defending, to to trust entirely, and to to place our faith in. I think Guardiola's gone through the the same thing. What he had to, you know, people regarded him as a bit of a buffoon for trying to play a goalkeeper in, in Bravo, who want, who he wanted to use his feet, um, and and play as a play as a sweeper. It was, why why can't he just play Joe Hart? He's a good goalkeeper, but he wanted someone who's going to come off and play as that sweeper keeper and be able to start moving from there and. Now we can see the idea with Edison is actually quite is quite, is quite a good one. Mm. But you look at you look at Dortmund from uh, at Wembley um, a couple of weeks ago against Spurs when everything didn't all work absolutely perfectly. Spurs found it very easy to get in behind, even though I thought they were probably inferior on the night. Where someone like Mourinho, he takes away all elements of risk from the from the game. They sit back and then they try to hit you on the break, and they tend to win games one nil or they overwhelm you in the last in the last ten minutes. And the unfortunate thing is that that kind of risk-free football is more likely to get you uh, a lot more medals. But you might remember a Jurgen Klopp team much more for, for the way that they play their football. Yeah. 
I think that's why a lot of people want them to do well. Well, someone who, who hasn't yet been accused of not knowing how to organise a defence, although his team have are one of the only three teams who have conceded more goals than Liverpool, is Craig Shakespeare, the Leicester manager. Um, I wondered, uh, before we finish up, what your uh, take is, Jonathan, on the what, what the level of ambition is at Leicester these days. I mean, they're 15th in the league. You know, obviously last season you know, started terribly and, and didn't get much better in the end. Um, and this is a team that recently won the title. You know, they, I mean, that's, you know, this, this stupendous achievement is still quite recent. Um, the owners are, uh, you know, a very important, very wealthy family. And their team didn't fall apart. I know they lost their best player probably in Kante, but they kept Mares and they kept Vardy. Yeah, you know, so, so I wonder how long do you think they will be content with this uh, situation to be 15th? I mean, um, you know, Leicester's owners haven't really been in the game long enough to, to have a real uh, sense of Leicester City's rightful place in the world somewhere between the top and second divisions. You know, they are, they're the Premier League champions of a couple of seasons ago, currently 15th. How long do you think this can last? You sure you want me to talk about Leicester, Ken? Yes, I want, I want to hear, <laughs> I want to hear what um, you think. Well, I, th- I think there's been a, a recognition that the title is, was a one-off. Then that's not going to happen again. 15th is, is probably not what they would, they would want to finish. But I, th- I think the owners and certainly Craig Shakespeare would be quite happy just being a mid-table team in perpetuity. There's, uh, for, for a club like Leicester, realistically, and, and I know that they, they, kind of, they kind of busted that, that theory a couple of years ago, but realistically, their ceiling is maybe eighth in the Premier League. And anywhere between eighth and 15th, there are a dozen teams in the Premier League who would, who would snap your hand off. And I, and I think something like, you know, if, if they manage to finish, say, 11th or 12th this season, Shakespeare keeps his job... All the players are happy, the board are happy, the owners are happy, and, and they, they very clearly have a, have a squad that's good enough to finish that that high. All right, Jonathan, brilliant stuff. Jacob, thanks so much. Cheers. You're just a crying big baby. But you cannot call it a player a baby. What? Where you think you got it all wrong today? Which is the game you wanted a victory boy? Didn't have a Well, it's just the nervousness. You look frustrated on the pitch. Which is the game you wanted a victory boy? Didn't have a You wanted victory. Well, I wanted victory. Which is the game you wanted a victory boy? Didn't have a Where you think you got it all wrong today? against them in the premiership and we never said they are baby. It's just a crying big baby and you cannot call him a player a baby. You see, Murph, I told you, just be patient and you'll get your information. It was Jonathan Liu who mm. had Jurgen Klopp's big paws around him. Great stuff. Have you ever been affectionately hugged by a manager? Again, on the beat? Kino? Uh, trap? Stan? No, Trap. Trap uh, probably <laughs> sat me on the back a few times. Rafa Benitez patted me on the back. Mm-hmm. Um, Stan, no. Imagine Stan would give you much. Stan, well done, Jeff. No. Did you get any well, well done, done, Jeff? Ken. Well done, Ken. I don't remember 
I don't remember. Not that. definitely not from Roy Keane that time you asked him what's wrong with being accused of faking injury anyway. Yeah. There was no um, there were no hugs. Back no then I thought you were game. right, but I, I can't. why didn't you just go? <laughs> I can't remember I can't remember any, any hugs. But I mean Klopp hugs a lot of people. You're not in the business of getting hugs, Ken, are you? You can't no Truth, not hugs. Well I wouldn't mind. That's what Ken Early's uh, Ken Early's after. I don't mind a hug uh, from the time to time. The, the time to time, mm-hmm. Owen. Um, but there, I thought it was interesting to just to, on the question what we we were speaking about there with uh, Jonathan and Jacob of you know whether Klopp is is throwing players under the bus to a certain extent. I would say actually it's the exact opposite. I would say if anything, he's too uh, indulgent isn't really the right word, but too kind of. Um, well, maybe indulgent is the word. I mean, it's not that these players have done anything particularly bad, but they are making a lot of mistakes, you know? I, and there's a kind of an element of ruthlessness in the decisions of a of a top manager. You know, you love the players, and you make them feel really special right until the moment when you just can't stand another mistake from them, and at which point they're gone. You know, this is, this is a pattern that we've seen with a lot of very successful managers. And what Klopp does reminds me a bit more of Arsene Wenger. You know, even, even what Jonathan was saying about... Uh, it's like he's trying to just uh, create this positive atmosphere all the time, and any negative comment is kind of almost an attack on that, and he has to uh, he has to attack that to get rid of it. Um, it is very Wenger-like uh, in terms of their their approach. Wenger for years would would persist with the same players who just weren't doing it because he was like, "I believe in you. I believe in your potential." I mean, Klopp has got there's a few quotes from him recently where he's talking about all this, you know. Um, You've got to believe uh, a big part of football and life, this is Klopp now speaking, is really put faith in the people you work with. Trust them because they all can improve. They all can. They are all good out there. Like, I mean, they're not. You know, they're not all good out there. Like, there's, some of them are, are pretty bad. Like, but he's, he, he does seem to be quite genuine in this. You know, in the sense that I'm going to... Like, for instance, uh, you can see Dejan Lovren. He's probably the player who... who has got most criticism individually. He's made obvious mistakes. You can see, anyone can see, that he gets flustered and nervous when he's on the ball. Oh, what am I going to do? Uh, uh, you know, miss, he missed the ball against Sevilla. You know, various things. Lovren also, you may have noticed Tony Barrett, who now obviously works with Liverpool, um, um, who we've spoken to many times in the show, but he said... On Twitter, Dejan Lovren has not given any interviews to any English newspapers about a break-in at his home in Croatia. And essentially the story was that uh, he was in Croatia with his wife and children. Uh, there was like a burglary at the place they were staying, like they were all asleep. And guys, you know, there was kind of speculation about, or had he mentioned something like, he, in an interview with the Croatian media, that uh, they he, he thought maybe they'd put something in the air supply, you know, to kind of ensure that they didn't wake up like some kind of gas, like uh, to knock them out while they did the burglary. And obviously he was kind of shaken by this. And he's had a few, like he has had a few issues in his personal life, Lovren, over the over the last while, you know, a stressful incident like that, you know, one or two other things. Um, and I kind of feel as though, to some extent, Klopp is saying, is kind of, so. I mean, you got you got to catch this all against the fact that he did try to replace him. Like he tried to replace him with Virgil van Dijk. That didn't work out. And he is kind of saying, look, you know, let's, don't worry. I'm, I believe in you. I support you. You know, he kind of has to, it, this, this is his whole way of doing things. And he believes that people will reward you. You know, I guess it's a bit like the best statement of it is, is David Brett. Treat them greatly and they will show themselves to be great. 
is 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 really the philosophy that I'm talking about here. But it is that that is actually what he does. That's that reminds me a lot more of Wenger than it does of somebody like Ferguson or, or Jose Mourinho. So yeah, you started the show by dis- by dismissing the comparisons between Rogers and Klopp, Klopp. and now you're actually accusing Jurgen Klopp of Brentisms, which <laughs> would be seen as the center point of much of the yeah. Rogers School of Communication. Trust people, and they will be true to you. <laughs> Treat them greatly. I think that was what, what he said. But no, but look, it's it is it's a positive way to view to view work and to view human relations. It is a, it's a real we're all in this together. Let's join hands, care bears there kind of philosophy, and it did work for us in Wenger for many years before it stopped working. You know, you can either have an indomitable spirit of this band of brothers, or you can have a bunch of cosseted guys who aren't up to it being pampered by a manager who's not ruthless enough to get rid of them and replace them with better players. So which is it? Uh, Klopp versus Rafa next week. Uh, we'll find out uh, who should really be managing. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, Thanks, for, Thanks, Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow if you're on the World Service. Take care. That's the second time he's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.